The theme of the day is prophets, in case you hadn't picked that up yet. I knew a prophet once. He was the biggest jerk I ever met. We've got a lot of them hanging around in this service. We've got Isaiah, we've got John the Baptist. They're, they're in this service. They're in this season of Advent more generally. Ad, Advent is the season when we trot these guys out and remind ourselves of what they were all about, what they had to say. Sometimes I think religious people use the word prophet or prophetic as an excuse for being impolite and demanding and judgy. I suspect you know somebody like that. I went to seminary with some people like that. People who have it all figured out, people who can tell you exactly what's wrong with the world, and more particularly, why you are the problem. <laughs> that guy invariably thinks he is a prophet. Turns out I am not the only one out there who has some uneasiness with this label prophet, whether that's an ancient figure or a contemporary one. Some of you know that our diocese is in the midst of a search process for our next bishop. Bishop Michael has indicated that he'll retire at the end of 2020. Our diocese will consecrate a new bishop right there in uh, January of 2021, about a year from about a year from now. So part of my work over the past couple months has been serving on the search committee for that position. We were reviewing applications, preparing a slate of candidates to present to the diocese because bishops are elected in the Episcopal Church. That's how we do them. So part of the work of the search committee has been to survey every single congregation in the Diocese of Oregon. That's 72 churches, 72 gatherings of Episcopalians, some of them huge, some of them tiny, everywhere from Astoria to Bandon find out what's most important to Episcopalians in Oregon in terms of what they're looking for in their next bishop. And it's been interesting, uh, both as, a, as an exercise in kind of where we are as a diocese, but also as an interesting kind of window into what this particular group of Oregonians thinks about leadership right now, um, what people say they want in their next leader. Uh, Episcopalians have said they want a relationship builder, they want a spiritual leader, somebody who's culturally responsible, an adaptive and creative thinker. More interesting than what people say they want is what people say they don't want. At the very top of the list of qualities most undesirable in our next bishop, more than 50% of Episcopalians surveyed said they do not want a prophet. Well... That's interesting. I mean, what is it about these guys, these prophets? They're, they're hard guys to love. I mean, we trot them out this time of the year, you know, a few weeks before Christmas Eve. Before you, we let you anywhere near baby Jesus in the manger, we inflict upon you these angry words from ancient political pundits, the revolutionary firebrands of their day. Prophets are not necessarily the guys who predict the future, although they often have a vision of an anticipated reality. Sometimes that's a dire reality. It's judgment and thick darkness. Sometimes it's beatific, like we see in Isaiah's vision this morning. Predicting something to come is is always a part of their program. With prophets, there's always a vision, and there's almost always a warning, and often that warning is pretty pointed. Prophets never met a political situation about which they did not have an opinion. They were like the self-appointed experts in ancient Middle Eastern foreign policy issues, right? They foretold the dire effects of certain treaties and alliances. They predicted foreign invasions and political downfalls. We don't tend to read those prophecies in church, right? The super specific, historically contextualized stuff that Hebrew prophets had to say about ancient political situations. You know, we, we read Isaiah's, Isaiah's vision of the peaceable kingdom. We do not read his heavy-handed indictment of the kings of Aram and Damascus and Syria, right? We read the, the predicted birth of the child Emmanuel. We'll hear, we'll hear that in a couple weeks, right? Emmanuel is a name that means God with us. We do not read 
just a few verses later, the predicted birth that Isaiah, the, the birth that Isaiah predicts of the child Meher Shalal Hazbaz. That's a name that means hasten to the plunder. I guess Meher Shalal Hazbaz does not make for a very catchy Christmas carol. Nobody wants to sing, O come, O come, ye looting and pillaging one. That's a baby that did not get picked up. It kind of spoils your Christmas a little bit. So we kind of let that one go. The prophets do understand one thing. They're kind of like the populists of their day. They know how to tap into people's anger, and they do it incredibly well. The prophets speak of a God who makes very clear distinctions, right? A God with what's sometimes called a preferential option for the poor and the marginalized, a world that is very neatly and tidily divided up into righteous people and wicked people, right? Wheat and chaff, darkness and light. You hear a lot of that dualistic thinking in Isaiah's longing for a ruler who will arbitrate with righteousness, right? A guy who will crush the oppressor and kill the wicked, that's what Isaiah says, but decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Isaiah is calling for a great cleansing, right? Before we get to the peaceable kingdom, we go through the great destruction. All the rulers, all the kings, all the mighty powerful ones, they're being cut down, they're being leveled like trees. That's the image where the stump of Jesse actually comes from, right? Isaiah says he's going to come in and he's going to cut down every tree. He's going to mow the whole field. And then what is left is this stump, this tiny little dead thing, the stump of Jesse, and something new and fledgling is just starting to peek its head up out of it. That's the branch that's going to begin, the righteous branch. Jesse, of course, is the father of King David, right? That's the, sort of the great king of Israelite memory. So when Isaiah says a root is going to grow out of Jesse, Isaiah is calling for a new king who will pick things up exactly where King David left them off, somebody who's going to arbitrate the way David is remembered to have, have arbitrated, to restore Israel to the glory Isaiah thinks that God intended for it. And so the image of this ruler's kingdom is almost an absurdist one. I think actually the image of the peaceable kingdom was meant to make you laugh. It's meant to be kind of silly, this world in which, you know, kids and snakes are playing together and carnivores pass up a meat-heavy diet in order to cuddle up with their dinner. It's meant to be a little absurd. As Woody Allen said, you know, the wolf may lie down with the lamb, but the lamb is not going to get a lot of sleep that night. That's, that's the kind of reaction, I think, that the prophet's image is meant to evoke. It's meant to be silly. It's meant to be a little funny, a little absurdist. It's a defanged world, the prophet imagines, a kind of restoration of the Garden of Eden. Everybody's a vegan in this world. This is, this is the kind of thing, though, Isaiah says. This is the kind of thing. It's so, it's so ridiculous. You can't even imagine that world. That's the kind of thing that this new ruler can bring about when the reign of God comes in its fullness. Isaiah says, the impossible is possible. The peaceable kingdom, so ridiculous in its details, is actually, Isaiah says, that's a little bit closer to the way things were meant to be before everything got messed up and everything got complicated. There is anger here, right? Anger is what motivates these guys. Certainly John the Baptist, right? He's motivated by anger. But in order to get to the vision, Isaiah thinks, John thinks, you have to, you have, to have this wholesale slaughter. They begin with this, whole, this the kind of holy anger with people in power. That anger then moves them to these rather unsettling images of destruction and violence, the cleansing that has to take place. On the other side of the cleansing judgment are these beautiful, silly, ridiculous, absurdist, awesome images of restoration and peace. Right alongside the prophet's anger is the prophet's creativity. 
It's not enough to simply call for the wholesale destruction of kingdoms and the slaughter of dynasties. You gotta put something better in its place. So we prayed this morning that God would give us grace to heed the prophet's warnings and forsake our sins. I'll admit, I find that to be a difficult prayer to pray, honestly. The images of judgment and destruction that these guys serve up do not always sit well with me. I find them uncompromisingly black and white, who, you know, these thinkers who delight in stirring the pot and making people mad. By the prophet's definition, though, heeding a warning and forsaking my sins, that's not really about, like, totting up my personal naughty and nice list for Santa. The prophets are not interested in the question of who stole the cookie from the cookie jar. They're not interested in where you spent your Saturday night. They don't care that much about personal morality. What they care about is apathy. Nine times out of ten, when the prophets talk about sin, when the prophets are there with a warning and an indictment, that's what they're talking about. It's the sin of not paying enough attention. It's the sin of not caring anymore. In our bishop survey, we asked people to, uh, to talk a little bit about what this word prophet means to them, why, why they didn't want it, if you like. Um, and it's interesting why, why people said they don't want a prophet. Some of the kind of negative stereotypes that have come along with that word, at least as we experience it in church leadership, right? People who are egotistical, autocratic, and, and, and dictatorial, somebody who's more, more concerned with social issues than with spiritual issues, somebody with an inflexible agenda, that's what somebody wrote. I'll admit, on my snarky days, that's exactly how prophets often strike me too. But some people were a little more nuanced. If a prophet, wrote one guy, if a prophet means fussing around with stories about the end of days, that is a quality that is undesirable in our next bishop. But if prophet means somebody who understands the times we're in, I think that's almost the only thing that matters in our next bishop. Because we're in pretty perilous times. And this next generation is going to result in the rise and fall of a lot of significant institutions. Those are perilous times indeed. So maybe the image of the prophet needs a little bit of rehabilitation, at least among us Episcopalians. Maybe you're like me and you've been a little quick to judge prophets as autocratic, dictatorial thought police warriors with a strident social agenda, the kind of cancel culture that we see on Twitter and on Facebook. Certainly some of those qualities describe a guy very much like John the Baptist, right? A guy who never met a brood of vipers that he didn't relish upbraiding. But our ancient traditions call John the forerunner, the guy who lays the groundwork. Without John, it said, the Jesus thing cannot happen. John wakes people up and gets them ready for the message of salvation and peace that Jesus is going to deliver. If we're listening, people like John, people like Isaiah, they tap into this kind of holy dissatisfaction, this longing that I think we feel if we're doing our due diligence, this longing we feel for things to be just a, maybe a little bit different than they are. John and Isaiah are expert at sowing seeds of disquiet in our complacent souls. And it's only disquieted people who are motivated to make changes. This is the angry voice inside of you sometimes when you, when you have that gut reaction and you think, no, that is, that is wrong. That is not okay. It's also the creative voice inside you that says, you know, what if we, what if we do this? What if it's this way? What if we try this thing? 
The prophet's voice is sometimes, it's like a bucket of cold water that gets thrown on pablum and pretension. It's the voice of the, the child in the procession who cries out, the emperor has no clothes. That's a prophetic voice. It's a wilderness voice, it's a desert voice, it's an uncompromised voice. You can't drown it out. You either get on board with it or you get out of the way. And the prophets say that's because God is at work, right? God is not warm and God is not fuzzy and God is moving. The voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, right? That's a voice with an agenda. It's a voice with a pretty inflexible agenda. It's a wake-up call. Anytime that I start getting too apathetic, too self-satisfied and content with my life the way it is, whenever I'm a little bit too in love with my setup, whenever I'm a little too comfortable in my pew, that's when this bracing breath of cold air comes blowing into my world to remind me that what I see is not all there is. Something else is coming, and that thing is big. There's a hard rain going to fall, and the time to get ready for it is like yesterday. That's the warning. That's the wake-up call. Hark of thrilling voices sounding. The reason it thrills you is that it's slightly dangerous. It's a little unhinged. It's a little crazy. And maybe there's something worth paying attention to, even from the craziest voice in the room. I don't know what wake-up call you need to hear this morning. I don't know where you've fallen asleep and gotten a little too content. I can almost guarantee you that if you're paying attention this week, there is a John the Baptist or an Isaiah out there with your number. Somebody who's ready to call you into a deeper engagement with the world. If history is any indication, that prophetic nudge will begin not with an ecstatic vision of the end times or the beatific kingdom. The prophetic vision will probably start when you tap into that sense of dissatisfaction, maybe even a sense of anger. I think sometimes it begins with powerlessness, a sense that, you know, something's not right, but the prophetic spirit can't just stop with anger, right? Anger that lashes out at other people and calls them all broods and vipers and then goes and hides or whatever. The, the anger of the prophets is a holy anger. It's not a reactive anger. It's anger that's mixed with creativity and vision. And the true prophetic spirit is when righteous anger comes right alongside righteous creativity, and the combination of those forces, the combination of anger and creativity results in this deep engagement with the stuff in our lives that needs change. I'm willing to bet that there is something in the world right now that makes you mad, or at least makes you a little bit irritated. And if that's more than just easy white people irritation, if that's holy anger, which is a different thing, and you'll know it, right? You'll know it when it begins to blossom forth with this greater sense of creativity and excitement and lightness and freshness. When you start imagining things in different ways, when you start to get unsatisfied and you want something a little bit different, a little bit deeper, a little bit better, get unsatisfied, ye satisfied ones. The Holy One of Israel is not going to leave you alone. That is a threat as much as it is a promise. God is found not just in our moments of silent night and peace on earth. God is found in our discontent, in our disgruntlement and our frustration and our anger and our pain. God can be found in our creativity and our ridiculous attempts to try something impossible, these strange and silly visions we hold of a world that looks different than the world that we see around us. If the wolf can lie down with the lamb, if a young child can play with a snake, if holy anger actually results in a world defanged, 
then something incredible is about to take place. That means God is not done with us. That means the book is not yet closed. There is a revelation awaiting. And this is just the beginning.